Could you please turn with me to the end of Genesis as we come to an end of the series? Uh, Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. Genesis 50, 15 to 21. Can we all stand for the reading of God's word? When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and begin our message. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. How does Genesis begin? Genesis begins with creation, with life, with ingenuity, with all this potential. And if you remember how Genesis began, I, the picture that I had that we saw here was we saw like curtains opening. Here is a grand show about to begin. Now we've come to the end of the series of Joseph. We've come to this end of Genesis. How does it end? Well, it looks like it ends with death. Looks like it ends with death, doesn't it? Looks like it ends with death. The passage that was read today is important because right in the middle of Jacob's death and the death of Joseph is this passage. And if you've heard any of my sermons before, anytime we see a burger, we got to focus and not lose sight of the meat in the middle. So on one hand, we have the death of Jacob. Seemingly now, Jacob was a person who had wrestled with everyone everything and even God to have control over his own life and destiny. But once he gave his life over to the Lord and submitted it to him, ironically, he regains control and power over his family, even to bless and to curse. And he regains control even over himself. He was able to go against Joseph, the second highest in all of Egypt. Joseph's demand to bless Manasseh first, and yet Jacob does a cross blessing. We can see this even physically on display in the last chapter to the very last minute moment of Joseph's, uh, Jacob's life where he himself, you can imagine this, he himself gets up puts his feet on the floor, gives out the blessings and curses, and once he is done, it says he draws up his feet unto his bed, and he passes. To the very last moment, 
he does have this control. And this is what we are being shown, that once we give up control, we see God give it back to us. But what now? The patriarch is gone. The man who had control is gone. And what happens when you lose control? There's fear. There's fear. One summer night during a very severe thunderstorm, a mother was tucking her small son into bed and she was about to turn off the light. And when in a trembling voice, her son said, Mommy, will you stay with me all night? And smiling, the mother turned around, went back to her son, gave him a reassuring hug and said very tenderly, I can't, dear. I need to sleep in daddy's room. And then a long silence followed, and at last it was broken by her son yelling, the big sissy. There is fear in death. There is fear in the uncertain. There is fear in separation. There is sometimes anger. But one thing that there is, is point number one, in fear there is irrationality. In fear there is irrationality. Fear set in, and when fear set in, irrational behavior followed. For 17 years after Joseph had reunited with his brothers, he treated them well like princes. He gave them everything that they needed. He gave them the best of the land for 17 years. But once their father died, you never know, right? You never know. He might turn on us. He might exact revenge that actually we deserve. And that trust slowly eroded and the fantastic became more and more of a viable option. There's a story of the 23rd president and his missus, Benjamin Harrison. They were so intimidated and scared by the electricity installed in the White House that they never touched the switches. And if there were no servants to turn off the lights at night, the Harrisons just went to bed with the lights on, just like that. Irrational behavior follows from fear. We have things called palatophobia. That's a real fear. What is that? That's a fear of bald people. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. There is aerophobia. That's a fear of drafts, like a little drafty wind. There is porphyrophobia. That's the fear of the color purple. There is catophobia, which is the fear of hairy people. There's levophobia. That's nothing to do with uh, Harry Potter, but levophobia is the fear of objects on the left side of the body. There's dextrophobia, fear of objects on the right side of the body. There's auroraphobia, which is fear of the northern lights. There's Caliprophobia, fear of obscure meanings. Probably afraid of that word. Um, there's thalassophobia, fear of being seated. 
There's stasbisbasophobia, fear of standing and walking. There's andantophobia, fear of teeth. There's graphophobia, fear of writing in public. And last but not least, there's phobophobia, fear of being afraid. <laughs> When fear sets in, irrationality follows. Fear set in the group of brothers, and didn't matter what happened in the past. We started entertaining these irrational ideas, entertaining these fantastical things, and it started to paralyze them. And when it starts to paralyze, number two, in fear there is hopelessness. In fear there is hopelessness. There's a group of people that believe that there is no God. They believe that there is no God. In fact, they have absolute faith that there is no faith, but they believe that there is no God and we're nothing more than animals. What they truly believe is that death is the end. This is, this is not something that they would argue with. Death is the end. And we live around 80 years, and if we're lucky, we'll live a little longer than 80. If we're a little unlucky, we'll live less. But that's it. What we do in life eventually doesn't matter. Because if you look at the grand scheme of things, the universe is constantly and continually expanding. And while it's expanding, guess what's happening? It's using energy. But usable energy is turning and replaced with useless energy, energy that we cannot use. And because of that, there is hopelessness. And you might think that life is just something to be lived But then there's a bitterness that sets in when others around have what you think is false hope. It's fake, it's stupid. This false hope that all these people have gives me a headache. If you can't get it, then others are crazy for thinking otherwise. Hopelessness is not just paralyzing. Hopelessness is daunting. You cannot hold it. You can't bear it. It has to be shared. That's why we see what's happening today. One night at dinner, a man who, met, who spent many summers in Maine was um, fascinating his companions by telling them a story about what's going on in Flag, what went on in Flagstaff, Maine. And the town was supposed to be flooded because uh, a dam that was being built was, um, wasn't going to be completed in time. The town was going to be flooded. And so months before it was going to be flooded, all the improvements and repairs in the town were stopped. What was the use of painting the house if it's going to be covered in water in six months? Why repair anything when the whole village is going to be wiped out? So week by week, what this man was witnessing was the town became more bedraggled, more down, more depressed, more hopeless. And he said this, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. When we are surrounded and we let this hopelessness come in, What we see is that we start losing even power for the present. 
And number three, in fear, there is unfulfillment. There is an unfulfillment in death. Death means unfulfillment. No one, no one, and I mean no one, gets to live out every single one of their dreams. Death means that however great or close to fulfillment I had to that dream, death means it gets cut short. Uh, my grandfather, when he was dying, um, he was, I guess, on, on his deathbed, and he had a dream. And I thought the dream was amazing. I didn't know he was going to pass away so soon after he had this dream, but he had this dream, and he barely had energy. He had lost so much weight. He looked like a stick. Um, but that's what happens when you have cancer. And he had this dream, which I will never forget. And he told my, my father, and my father would tell all his brothers and sisters and all of our family. But my grandfather had a dream that he was preaching to thousands. He had a dream that he was preaching to thousands. And people heard that. If you don't know, my grandfather was a pastor and was a preacher all his life. And people even thought, oh, maybe he's going to live to preach to thousands. Maybe this is prophetic. But he died. He didn't fulfill that dream. In death, in fear, there is unfulfillment. And not just the dream, but the relationship gets cut short. My grandfather loved two things. When I was growing up, I realized he loved two things a lot. Number one was the Yankees, which made me very sad, because go Mets. But my number one was the Yankees, and he loved the Yankees. Anytime the Yankees were on, he would turn on the TV. And number two, he loved pro wrestling, which made me because I didn't like pro wrestling either. I'm like, that, uh, I'm like, Grandpa, don't you know that's fake wrestling? Anyway, I mean, if he was alive today, I would tell him, hey, a pro wrestler became president, aren't you happy? But um, he liked the Yankees and pro wrestling. But because I loved my grandfather, at times, I would sit next to him and watch the Yankees play and go, boo. No, I, I thought Don Mattingly was pretty cool. But um, I would watch the Yankees play. And I would watch Randy Macho Man Savage or whatever his name is and Hulk Hogan come out and put on a display. And I would watch with him. And if I was ever lucky, he would make these um, wheat flour noodles with soup. It was very simple noodles, but I loved it. And so I would eat that with him. So that's my memory with my grandpa. My, my dad hated those noodles. so. He didn't eat it, so it would just be me and my grandpa. And I asked my dad, why don't you like these noodles? They're so good, so simple. You just take simple fish broth, put in noodles, boom, you're done. You know, a little soy sauce if you want. Man, I should have got that for refreshments. But um, he didn't like it, he said, because it reminds him of being poor and it's a cheap food, so he doesn't eat that. But now, later in my father's life, he started eating those noodles. But um, I would enjoy my time with my grandfather. But don't you see death cut that short? 
that relationship that I wanted to continue to grow becomes unfulfilled. There are three things that we can see here. There is irrationality, there is hopelessness, and unfulfillment. And if you just look at the end of Genesis and you see death, you see that kind of theme almost being pervasive, almost trying to penetrate the brothers. The brothers came to Joseph and then, no, they sent a message saying, please don't. This is what our father said. We don't know if it's true, but probably not. But the brothers would come and say, please, our father said, don't kill us. But this is how Joseph responded. He responded by telling them that there is redemption in God. Even though there may be irrationality because of fear, hopelessness because of fear, unfulfillment because of fear and death, there is redemption in God. When Joseph got this letter from them, he wept. And when he wept and the brothers heard about it, they came to Joseph and they said, maybe he won't kill us, but maybe he'll just at least make us his slaves. So please, make us at least your slaves and don't kill us. And this is how Joseph responded. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Are you hearing this? He is saying, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The message that God is giving, even when death is facing them, is that God can turn it for good. Joseph responds to their fear by saying that you can come in response to me with your fears, but I am not God, and I cannot do what God can do, and what God has planned is good and not evil. Psalm 49 says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. What's your life worth? If you were to be a servant or slave, how much would you have to get paid? And how desperate are you? Let's say for a year's work of slaving, tirelessly, doing menial work. I'm just gonna give just a random example. Just for a year, and I won't do it for the whole day, just from, let's say, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., you're my slave. How much would you need to get paid? How much can I ransom or pay for your life? But what if that extended to 10 years? What if that extended to 20 years? What if that extended to 50, 100, eternity, because we were meant for eternity? Can another person pay for that life? Do we have that capability to ransom another person's life? And the psalmist is saying, no, no man can ransom another. 
for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. What we deserve, what we have bought, and it is from the very beginning of Genesis, is we have earned death. We have earned this punishment. And no ransom can pay because we can't afford it, but someone can. At the end of Psalm 49, it says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol or hell, for he will receive me. In the place of irrationality, God wants to give us peace. When Jesus comes down into this world, in John chapter 14, verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In place of hopelessness, God wants to give us hope. <clears throat> there was a school system in a large city and they had a program to help children keep up with their schoolwork during stays in the city hospitals. And one day, excuse me, <clears throat> one day a teacher was assigned to receive just a kind of a routine call asking to visit a particular child. She took the child's name and room number and talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. And the class teacher said, we're studying nouns and adverbs in class right now. And I'd be grateful if you could help him understand them so he doesn't fall too far behind. So the hospital program teacher went to see the boy that afternoon. No one had mentioned to her that the boy had been badly burned and was in great pain. Upset at the sight of the boy, she stammered as she told him, I've been sent by your school to help you with nouns and adverbs. And when she left, she felt like she hadn't accomplished much. But the next day, the nurse went up to that teacher and said, what did you do to that boy? The teacher felt she must have done something wrong, so she started to apologize. And she, the nurse said, no, no, no. You don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy because ever since yesterday, his whole attitude changed. <clears throat> He's fighting back, responding to treatment. It's as though he decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy who had given up completely, he had explained two weeks later about why he didn't give up hope. Everything changed when he came to a simple realization, and he expressed it this way. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? In place of hopelessness, God has come to give us hope. And in a place of unfulfillment, God has given us complete and absolute satisfaction. John 6, 35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In the midst of death, we can be sandwiched in by death, but God intervenes and gives us life, a peace, hope, and absolute satisfaction that we cannot find in the world 
given to us. Remember, it was the psalmist who said there is no man who can ransom another person's life, but God can. And God did. Jesus is that intervention. He gave us his life and forfeited his peace, inviting chaos and death to his life so that we could have a peace that the world cannot give. He took on our hopelessness, so much so that when he was crucified, even the sky literally became dark so that he could give us hope that is everlasting. He took on our absolute separation from God with a cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so that we could be absolutely satisfied in the Father as he was. We have become benefactors of Jesus' perfect life and work. As we end the book of Genesis, is it the end? No, it's not. God isn't finished with his people, and God isn't finished with us, and he will perfect his handiwork, and he will complete his salvific work in each and every one of you. Let's pray.